you in First Thessalonians. Uh, if you'll open your Bibles to First Thessalonians chapter four, we're going to read the entire eschatological section here, but we'll be looking at First Thessalonians chapter five, the first three verses today. I had hoped to get further, but I have too many things. So 1 Thessalonians 4, starting at verse 13, and we'll read down through 5.11. Hear the word of the Lord. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of the archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God. The dead in Christ shall rise first, and then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds, to meet the Lord in the air. So we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Now, concerning the times and seasons, brothers, you have no need of anyone to write anything to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. For you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of the light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and the helmet of hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live for him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. This eschatological section is very important for us. We've read before, if we have hope in Christ in this life only, we are to be of all men most pitied. This life is not our home. We are strangers and pilgrims in this world. We are aliens, foreigners, enemies to the God of this age. And if we have hope only for today, then we have no real hope. We must live in expectation and really of, in anticipation of the great day of the Lord, which will come. And he encourages us to encourage one another with the thought of that. Remember in verse 418, encourage one another with these words, speaking of the coming of Christ. In verse 5.11, therefore encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. 
Again, this is a great and wondrous doctrine to the believer. I remember years ago seeing a movie about the end of the world from a more Catholic perspective. And it was the most horrible thing they could ever think of, that God would return and the world would be destroyed and they would all be lost. And the great hope was this whore was having a baby and she sacrificed her life for the baby and God relented and didn't destroy the world. And it's like, where do they get this kind of fantasy? But unfortunately, that's really where man's heart is. We should be looking at the day of the Lord is the great hope. Before we look at our text today, and we'll only get to the first three verses, let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the encouragement of your word, for the hope that has been given to us, for the knowledge that this wicked, corrupt, hurtful, hateful world will come to an end, and a new heaven and a new earth and perfections are awaiting us. And we know, Lord, that that will come and put our hope, therefore, in the returning of our Lord and Savior in the day of the Lord, and in eternity. And as we look at this today, we pray that you would encourage our hearts by it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now it's interesting, he starts this off saying that they don't need anyone to teach them about this subject. Uh, The reason for that is clear. They've already been taught by him. He's explained it to them. Now he had a very short time with them. As we saw earlier in the book of 1 Thessalonians, there was a lot left untaught that he's now teaching them and encouraging them and reminding them. But the day of the Lord was something he had taught in detail. Because really that should be one of the fundamental motivations of our life, knowing that the Lord will come, the Lord will judge, the Lord will restore, and his people will be with him for eternity. And we should be living our lives, as Peter says, as strangers and pilgrims here. Because this is not our home. The devil is not our God. We should be looking forward in hope to that day when he returns. And that was one of the first things in Christianity 101. I've only got a few days with you. These are the things I want to cover. Obviously, the gospel and salvation and the return of the Lord. Interesting. We don't seem to give it that much thought in the modern church, but we should take the time to really familiarize ourselves with the idea that he will return and what will happen and what we have to look forward to in the future, because that is our hope. He says that he uses the word times and seasons, and believe it or not, there's been a lot of discussion about that discussion, debate, argument. Uh, Basically, I think what he's talking about is when the Lord will return and what it's all about, what he's sharing with us today and what we'll go over today in our, our message. They were fully aware of the coming of the day of the Lord, especially fully explained about its unexpectedness, probably from Paul's teaching, but also Paul would have taught the Old Testament. He does that a lot in the books we read, particularly the book of Romans. He builds all of his arguments on the Old Testament. And in most of his books, he uses that. We also have Jesus' teaching. 
Jesus, the great teacher of hell, talks a lot about his second coming and a lot about the day of the Lord and the judgment to come. And the apostles, of course, were having new things being revealed to them, not just what was in the Old Testament. But as time progresses, God makes things more and more clear. And so we have a lot of instruction, many texts to read. I would love to read them all and preach a sermon on most of them. Uh, And that's why we're only doing three verses today. Because I really want to bring out the Old Testament teaching, tie it into the New Testament, so that we understand what Paul is driving at. This isn't something Paul made up. It isn't something obscure. It's very clearly taught throughout the Bible, and men just make it obscure. We won't get into the debates and the fights and the arguments. We'll be looking at the encouragement to us from God. The Old Testament, that great day of the Lord, is foretold by Isaiah. Isaiah says, Wail, for the day of the Lord is near, as destruction from the Almighty will come. Therefore, all hands will be feeble, and every human heart will melt. They will be dismayed. Pangs and agony will seize them. They will be in anguish, like a woman in labor. Just as Paul mentions here. They will look aghast at one another. Their faces will be aflame. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel, with wrath, with fierce anger. We'll get to that part in verse 9, Lord willing, in a couple of weeks. To make the land a desolation, to destroy its sinners from it. The stars of heaven and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be darkened at its rising. The moon will not shed its light. I think Peter, he also mentions that. We'll look at Peter later. I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for its iniquity. I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant. I will lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. Isaiah 13, 6-11. Now, first of all, let me say I would really not want to be Placed, have my lot placed with the wicked in the day of the Lord. It sounds truly horrific and terrifying, and it is. We see the day of the Lord here as the day of God's wrath on the wicked. Jeremiah also warns of it. He says, the day of the Lord... The day of the Lord God of hosts, a day of vengeance, to avenge himself on his foes. The sword shall devour and be sated and drink its fill of their blood. For the Lord God of hosts holds a sacrifice in the north country by the river Euphrates. Jeremiah 46.10. War will come with the day of the Lord. War, not of the wicked oppressing the righteous, but war of God against all of the wickedness of the world. Ezekiel proclaims it is a day of doom. The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, prophesy against the prophets of Israel who are prophesying and say to the one who prophesy from their own hearts, hear the word of the Lord. We read that in our reading, Old Testament reading this morning from Uh, From Jeremiah 23, the prophets were prophesying peace 
And here again, prophesied of the prophets who are prophesying their own hearts. Hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, Woe to the foolish prophets who follow their own spirit and have seen nothing. Your prophets have been like jackals among the ruins, O Israel. You have not gone up into the breaches or built a wall for the house of Israel that it might stand in battle in the day of the Lord. For they have seen false visions and lying divinations. They say, declares the Lord, or thus saith the Lord, when the Lord has not sent them. In it they expect him to fulfill their word. Have you not seen a false vision and uttered a lying divination whenever you have said, thus saith the Lord, although I have not spoken? What were their prophecies? Their prophecies were of peace. God has a wonderful plan for you. Don't worry. Be happy. Go on as you are. And yet he's saying that it's it's a lying prophecy. How do they how would they build a a wall? How would they stand in the breach? By calling the people to repentance. If the people are righteous, that is a fortress of God against the day of the Lord, against the, the horrors that will happen. We won't read it, but Joel's prophecy in Joel 2, 1 through 11 is a prophecy of doom and of war and of the destruction of everything that men love. Speaking of the apostate and hypocritical Jews in his day, Amos warns them to hate evil, love good, establish justice in the gate. It may be that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be gracious to the remnant of Amos, of, Israel, of Joseph. Amos 5.15. That's something we should all remember. That is what God wants. They are not doing it. And thus he continues on a few verses later in verse 18. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Now that's kind of interesting. Why woe to desiring the day of the Lord? Shouldn't all believers desire and hasten it? We'll read that later in Second Peter three eleven through 13. That is something we're all to want, would desire that day. But he says to them, Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light. It's as if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him and went into the house and leaned his hand on the wall and a serpent built it, bit him. God's wrath, as we shall see, is inescapable. There's no getting away from it. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light, gloom with no brightness in it? Why is he saying all of this, you might wonder? Well, he goes on to say, I hate, I despise your feasts. They're the feasts that the Lord has proclaimed to be held. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Harsh. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs, the melody of your harps. I will not listen. Even the songs of praise to him and the sacrifices are an offense when they're being offered by a wicked and stubborn stiff-necked people. The solution, however, is in the next verse. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness 
like an ever-flowing stream. That was Amos 15 through 24. It is a terrible thing to be an enemy of God in the day of his return. Obadiah, one of the minor prophets, prophesies, The day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return upon your own head. So there will be a judgment. Obadiah 1.15 makes us think of Jesus' warnings on the Sermon on the Mount, especially Matthew 7.2. The Old Testament prophecies warn of God's judgment, his wrath on the wicked, his final justice being delivered to them, and also the destruction of everything of the current universe, as we see in Second Peter. In the New Testament, God ties it together and brings it back to remembrance, the things that he has already told them. Jesus, in Matthew 24 and 25, has a lot to say about it. Now, we could read those two chapters. If you're curious, after the lunch, you know, at home, read Matthew 24 and 25 and think about it in regards to Today's message, we'll read a few snatches here and there. Jesus says, immediately after the tribulation of those days, speaking of the great tribulation that none has been like it ever before and never again, says, immediately after those days, the sun will be darkened. The moon will not give light. The stars will fall from heaven. The powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. And then all the tribes of earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Now we covered his coming, his parousia, last time in chapter 4 of 1 Thessalonians. And this is also the answer to the prophecy or the, the declaration, proclamation by the angels in Acts one eleven. They said, you'll see him coming the way he went. Why are you looking at the sky? He continues, and, you will send, and he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather the elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. We also talked about that last time. That was Matthew 24, 29 through 31. And Jesus is really tying all of the prophecies together so that we can understand them better. Now, in our passage today, Paul declares that that day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. And Jesus explains it like this. Concerning that day and hour, no one knows. Not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days... Before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day Noah went into the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. Now think about that for a minute. They had Noah, a preacher of righteousness. They had this giant ark being built. And the people had no clue their destruction was at hand. The great and final day of the Lord will bring about global destruction again of all the wicked. But like the first time, like with Noah, they had no clue, even though all the signs were right in their face, even though the preaching was coming. 
And Jesus says, so it will be with the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in the field and one taken, one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one left. Now we'll talk about this more when we get to verse 9, so I'm not going to touch that today. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know at what day your Lord is coming. The whole purpose of this is to say, be awake, be ready. You don't know. But know this, if the master of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and not let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming in an hour you do not expect. Now, this is a, pulse, uh, a concept Paul brings out also, the idea being, if you knew a thief was coming, you'd be sitting there with your shotgun waiting for him. Well, the thief comes and you're caught unaware, you may not be ready. Think of his parable of the ten virgins. Some didn't have enough oil. They fell asleep. They had no way to get oil in time. They begged for oil. They weren't ready. The other virgins are shown as having oil and a reserve, and they relight their lamps, and they're ready. That's the point he's trying to make here. And he also the story of the talents. The master goes away. They don't know when he returns. He returns, and he takes an accounting from them. We don't know what hour the master will come. Luke also brings this out. He says, in Luke, Jesus says, Stay dressed for action. Keep your lamp burning. Be like men who are waiting for the master to come home from the wedding feast, so they may open the door for him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants who the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at the table, and he will come and serve them. If he comes in the second watch or the third watch and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. But know this, if the, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. So you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Luke 12, 35 to 40. The idea being we need to be awake and sober. What does it mean to be awake and sober? Well, I think it means to be fighting the good fight, running the race set before you, resisting evil, doing what is right, living a righteous and holy life in this world, waiting for the Lord to judge at any moment as opposed to giving ourselves into our sin, wallowing in it, and being surprised by the coming of the Lord. Jesus taught there would be judgment when he returned, and we need to be ready for that. He says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered the nations, And he will separate one people from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. 
Then he will say to those on his left, jumping down to verse 41, Depart from me, you are cursed, into the eternal, eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And jumping to 46, those will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Matthew 25, 31 to 46. That judgment is coming, and Jesus is the one who will be doing it, and he will be doing it when he returns and sitting on his glorious throne. Peter takes a lot of this teaching and wraps it all together in Second Peter. In Second Peter chapter 3, he says, The day of the Lord will come like a thief. There it is again. Then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are in it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be? in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day. So the difference between the godless and the godly, the godless should not be hoping for that day. The godly should be hoping for it, waiting for it, and doing their part to hasten its coming, to prepare it. The day which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt and burn, but according to his promise, we are waiting for the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells. Peter includes the new heavens and the new earth as our great hope. What we are living for, what are we are doing all of this life, running the good race, fighting the good fight. Why are we doing all of that? The promise of the new heaven and the new earth. We should look at that promise a little bit here. It is not a new concept in the New Testament. It is from the Old Testament. Isaiah prophesied, Behold, I will create a new heavens and a new earth. The former things shall not be remembered or come into mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and a people to be gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad with my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping or the cry of distress. Isaiah 65, 17 through 19. And he prophesies again in the next chapter, 66, starting at verse 22. As for the new heavens and the new earth that I shall, that I shall make before me, says the Lord, so shall your offer, offspring and your name remain. From new moon to new moon, Sabbath to Sabbath, all flesh shall come to worship before me, declares the Lord. And they will go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me. For their worm shall not die, and their fire shall not be quenched. And they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. Now you remember that last part is part of Jesus' teaching. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Better to be, enter life crippled than with two hands. Go to hell in the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet and be thrown into hell. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. Better to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes be thrown into hell 
where their worm does not die and their fire is not quenched. Mark 9, 43 through 48. That is all connected, that the day of judgment, the day of final retribution, where men will be thrown into eternal torment. It is better to give up anything we have in this life, even life itself, that we might be with God. Revelation, John sees the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecies in Jesus' words. He said, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth have passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city in New Jerusalem coming down from out of heaven from God, (coughs) prepared as a bride and adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling of place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. Revelation 21, 1-4. That is a great and glorious hope for us, coming at the end of all of the other prophecies. That it does not end with God's rage and wrath and punishment. It ends with, a new and better world. The new and perfect world where there is no sorrow, no suffering, no pain for God's people. And so we're looking at the day of the Lord and the time of the end. We really, I think, see at least three distinct parts to it. The return of the Lord where everybody sees him coming on the clouds, the dead in Christ are raised, the living in Christ join them. We saw this previously in chapter 4 of 1 Thessalonians, verse 13 through 18, called the parousia, called the second coming, Christ comes. Then we see prophecies about God's wrath on the wicked, the destruction of the present universe, the judgment of all mankind. And we see that here in chapter 5 of 1 Thessalonians, the first 11 verses, where it's being called the day of the Lord. And then thirdly, we see the prophecies of the new heaven and the new earth. That was in Isaiah 65, 66, 2 Peter 3, 3, and Revelation 21. And we see these three things, and there's been a lot of debate. What is the order of the season? What are the times of these things? Not just when will it start, but how does it proceed? Is there a millennium stuck in there somewhere? Is there no such thing? A lot of discussion and debate, and that's really outside the scope of our passage today. And it's a very difficult matter to to try and harmonize it all. And we all come to different conclusions. The important part is those three things will happen. And we're to be looking forward to it. Joining the Lord in the air. What a great and glorious thing. We're told when the, that we should encourage one another with that promise. In 1 Thessalonians 4.18, we see the wrath on the wicked, the day of the Lord coming, the judgment of mankind. And in verse chapter 5, verse 11, we're told, therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, because that is not for us. That is for the wicked. And so with that, 
we have a picture of what the day of the Lord looks like. It's a day of wrath, a day of judgment, a day for the end of the current order and ushering in the new order. And it happens when Christ has come again. Note, though, that in verse 3, it says this will all come about when people are saying there is peace and security. Now, some mock the coming of the Lord as nonsense. He won't come again. Peter speaks of their foolishness at great length, so I just want to read his passage in Second Peter chapter 3. So this is now the second letter I'm writer, yeah, second letter I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of remember, reminder, that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets. Uh, we just considered those at length, and the commandment of the Lord and Savior and your apostles. So Christ's teaching and the apostles' teaching. Knowing, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. So they will mock at the, at the return of the Lord and say, my sin is good and I'm happy in it. Why would I want to worry about him coming back? They'll say, where is this promise of his coming? Ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Nothing has changed in 2,000 years. Isn't it absurd to worry about the return of the Lord? There are many who think that way. Much of the church has therefore given itself over to salvation is in the here and now. It's in this life, not in eternity. Salvation is now in many churches considered to be nothing more than living your best life now. Helping the poor. You save them by giving them food not by saving their souls for the return of the Lord. And so they mock. But Peter goes on in verse 5, they deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of the water and through the water by the word of God. Genesis chapter 1, God created all of these things. They belong to him. And he has that power to do that. Continuing in verse 6, and that by means of these the world that existed was deluged with water and perished we just talked about the great flood men were eating and drinking and getting drunk and committing debauchery and all things right up until the day noah closed the door of the or god closed the door of the ark and noah went in and the great flood came and they all perished how did that happen it wasn't a natural event the supernatural power of God. He had the power to create it. He had the power to send a flood to destroy it. And by that same word, the heavens and earth that exist now are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. That's what we've been talking about, the day of the Lord. So he said, by the same power, by the same supernatural power that created the world, that created man, that brought the flood, by that same power the world will be destroyed. Now you might have noticed something there. Isn't that mocked today in the church? Oh, God didn't create the world and man. Man evolved. 
God guided it because that was all he could do because he doesn't have the power to create. Oh, the great flood, well, it was a regional flood, maybe, because it was a natural event because God doesn't have the power. And therefore, we don't need to worry about this powerless God who threatens return and judgment because he's not that powerful in their wicked minds. But to us, to the believer, the word of God is true. God really did speak, and it came to be. And in seven days, he created everything that there is. Six days of work and one day of rest. Just as the Bible says, just as Jesus assures us, by his power, he sent a flood on the whole world, just as the Bible says. And he will return and bring the world to judgment, just as he says. Their little God is not the true God of the scripture, and they should be ashamed. This world is kept for fire, kept for the day of judgment, the destruction on the ungodly. Continuing, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. Now, this is often misused, but what is the purpose of him saying that? The Lord, the next verse, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. What is he saying? That just because it has already been 2,000 years, we should not say the Lord is slow in returning. To him, a thousand years is like a day. So it's been two days since Christ returned, or Christ came. It's not a big deal to the Lord. He sees time differently than man sees time. In fact, he is the author and creator of time, and therefore he can see the beginning from the end without trouble. And he is not being slow, he is being patient that all should reach repentance. Now, we already read verse 10 through 12. That was the passage, and I'll read it again. The day the Lord will come like a thief, the heavens will pass away with a roar, the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and its works in it shall be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to live? Lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the day of the Lord because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt and burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells. 1 Peter 3, 1 through 13. Yes. Well, the wicked are warned not to look forward to that day. I am looking forward to that new heaven and new earth. The wicked comfort themselves, believing that things will go on as they have forever and ever. God has been gone a long time. They've been getting away with their sin their whole life. The sins that men love have been around from the beginning of time. Why should they worry that Jesus will come? But he gives this warning, Jesus does. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them food in their proper time? Blessed is that servant who the master finds doing so when he comes, doing what God has commanded when Christ returns. 
Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed. We just read in Second Peter, where is his coming? And begins to beat his fellow servant and eat and drink with the drunkards. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, at an hour when he does not know. And he will cut him to pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Matthew twenty four, forty five to fifty one. Understand the purpose of God keeping a secret the day he will return. If men knew, if the wicked knew, they might try to hide their wickedness. They might try to feign righteousness. God says, be ready at any time, and I will return and judge, and I will see you as you are. You know, when I was in the army, there were surprise inspections. We would go weeks without anybody looking at our bunks to see if they were made properly. Then suddenly the sergeant, the captain, and the lieutenant in charge of our platoon would come wandering through, checking all the beds. You know, surprise inspection. We needed to be ready every day. We don't know when the Lord will come to judge. We need to be ready at all times. False prophets have always encouraged the people to think differently. Live for today. Don't worry. Peace. God intends good and peace and happiness. God wants you to be happy. So you don't have to struggle to be holy because happiness is greater than holiness. Many prophecies and many teachings about that these days. Live your best life now. Your best life better be your holiest life now because the Lord will return. They are saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. People build a wall, these prophets smear it with whitewash. Ezekiel 13.10 They say, I'm okay, you're okay. But it's not true. God's wrath remains upon sin, remains upon sinners. Judgment will come. No matter how we may escape judgment in this life, judgment will come. There is no escape. Others foolishly believe the lie that they're okay with whatever happens. They're trusting in themselves to escape God's wrath. Remember Jesus' warning? For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, we Christians know from reading the New Testament, they weren't righteous at all. But he's not talking in that sense. He's talking in the sense of what the Jews thought. The Jews believed their righteousness was perfect. That the scribes and the Pharisees, especially the Pharisees, they had it all laid out. I do this and all my sin is covered. I do this, my sin is covered. And they had their own way of being righteous and they considered their righteousness perfect. And what Jesus is telling them, unless your righteousness is more perfect than their perfection, you're not going to heaven. Paul explains, I bear witness to them. They have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. They're for being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Romans 10, 2 and 3. Our righteousness can never be adequate. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There is no exception. Romans three twenty three, And the wages of sin is death. There is no getting in on our own righteousness. 
But in Romans 3, 23, 24 says, but we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood, an atoning, appeasing sacrifice for his wrath. Right? We've talked about wrath in the day of the Lord. How do you avoid his wrath? Because Jesus is your propitiation, your, your atoning sacrifice to appease God's wrath. And only by the propitiation in his blood is there any hope of evading the wrath of God on the day of the Lord. It says that he did this to be received by faith. We must trust not in our own goodness, not in our works, not that God saw us down the road of time and thought we would be a good person and picked us, not that we have done more good than evil, not that we have in any way appeased his wrath, only by the propitiation of his blood, only that he has paid for our sins in full. That is the only atonement that will cover the wrath of God, only atonement that will turn aside God's wrath from us. Some, though, insist on trusting in what they've done rather than trusting what Christ has done. They will not trust in his blood They say, peace, peace. But sudden destruction will come upon them. Verse 3b. As the labor pains of a pregnant woman, woman, and they will not escape. We've covered the destruction already, but here we need to consider its suddenness. Jesus says it will come like a thief in the night while they're drunk or asleep. It will come like the labor pains on a woman. Unexpectedly, I remember being told by a woman, not my wife, uh, she was pregnant and she was sleeping and the water broke. So she got up and like, now I'll get a shower and I'll go into the hospital in the morning. Uh, five minutes later, <laughs> she's on the, pain, on the floor with labor pain so bad she can't stand anymore. Uh, suddenly came upon her, unexpectedly, just as in the days of Noah. Before the flood, they saw the ark, they didn't care. They heard the preaching, they didn't listen. They were surprised, eating and drinking and debauchery and drunkenness. And suddenly, what's happening? They see it with their own eyes and say, it's a lie, this isn't real. No, we've been telling you about that for 2,000 years, 3,000, 4,000. And yet... They don't listen. They don't take account. It'll be like them for that. Yellow feathers sticking out of their mouth, the canary cage open, and the master walks in. I'm good. You're good. We're all good. Judgment will come on the whole world. He will pour out his wrath against sin and sinners and destroy them from the face of the earth. That is what is promised. Jesus himself promises they will be cast into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And for all eternity they will suffer. And we need to warn them of the judgment that will come. Of course, it's not just the day of the Lord that is sudden. Remember the parable of the rich fool? Jesus said, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? I have nowhere to store my crops. 
I'll do this. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger barns. And I'll store all my grains and goods. And I'll say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be married. But God said to him, fool, this very night your soul is required of you. And things you have prepared, who will they be? So it is for anyone who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich to God. Luke 12, 16 through 21. We do not know the day we will die. Once we die, there's no future good works. There's no future for faith. Either we are right with God or we are wrong with God. Just as when he returns, we will either be ready and expecting and hopeful for his return, or we will be doomed. So in our death. We could die tomorrow saying, oh, I'll repent for that when I'm old. I remember meeting or hearing from a pastor that he'd evangelized somebody and they said, well, I'm still young and having fun. And basically, I'll, I'll repent and come to God when I'm old, when it doesn't matter anymore, when I'm near time to face him. Fool, life is fragile. We can meet him at any moment. Are we prepared? And that's the word here. We are to expect his returning. It's going to come. The day of judgment will come. It is inescapable. It is unavoidable. God has promised it. God has fixed a day in time when it will happen. He hasn't told us what day that is. Because he wants us to be ready every single day. Every hour. Every moment of our life. We need to be right with him waiting for his return and doing our part to prepare for it, for the world. And we are told to encourage one another with this world word. It will build us up, build one another up with these words. We need to think eternally and not think just of live your best life now. We need to think of storing our treasure in heaven and looking forward to the day when we are there. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your mercies. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for the joy of knowing that there will be a new heaven, a new earth, a new life, even though the day of the Lord must come first. We thank you, Lord, for your grace and mercy and pray that you would stir up hope in us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.